It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning. This is Ken Murray. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. Plenty of debate and discussion on the issues of the moment between now and 11 a.m. here on the program. And if you want to get in touch, the text number is 0861800658. Now, we start off with a story that uh, broke overnight, very pertinent to the northeast, in particular the Louth, Meath, and Cavan Monaghan area. And it is that the Northeast Doctors on Call Service will implement a reconfigured service providing urgent GP out-of-hours care to patients on a face-to-face basis until 10.30pm weekday evenings and 10pm at weekends. And thereafter, patients will have to access uh, a GP telephone advice only service. Now, patients of participating practices will have to access, uh, will have access to urgent appointments in the NEDOC treatment centres from 6.30pm to 10.30pm Monday to Friday and from 8am to 10pm at weekends. This marks a a major change in the service and to assess how and why it's happening, I'm joined on the line right now by Dr Elona Duffy. She is a Monaghan-based GP and a medical director of Northeast Doctors on Call. So, uh, Dr Duffy, just talk us through these changes and I suppose that the follow-up question will be, why exactly are they taking place? Morning, Ken. Well, I suppose it's worth giving a little bit of background. Um, Northeast Dock um, is a cooperative, so it's where GPs come together to provide out-of-hours service to their patients, and it was set up over 20 years ago. The aim was to provide emergency GP care, so it was to, for emergency problems that would be managed by GPs that couldn't wait until the next morning and would be managed by us. But I suppose as the years have gone by, we've seen this service change. We've watched as demand for the services increased. A lot of reasons for that. Number one, I suppose patient expectations expectation is different. People don't want to wait until the next day or perhaps using the service as more of a convenient service. Number two, we've found that other services aren't providing care in the out-of-hours, so there's no palliative care in the out-of-hours, there's no mental health care in the out-of-hours, other services, social workers, etc. are limited as well. So what tends to happen, dental services aren't available at night and, and are restricted at weekends. So what has happened over the years is that Northeast Dock has become the go-to for all of these services and services have been happy to add us uh, and our number to their messaging when the service when they turn off at five o'clock. 
which had been okay for many years, except in recent years, we have faced our own challenges. Um, Our numbers have been rising, and up to 2019, it was probably our busiest year ever when we dealt with over 90,000 calls. And while that dropped during COVID, we've now seen in the first five months of this year that the numbers are back up and actually exceeding the 2019 figures. So what does that mean for us? It means that we're busier in the out of hours, but our big problem is that we actually have less GPs to work the out of hours. And that's why we've had to make this really difficult decision that we have to protect the service. And by protecting the service, I mean protect the times when we're busiest and try and and reduce the service and therefore the number of doctors available in the quieter times, which to date has been the red eye hours, so the really after 10 p.m. Okay, so the service works from 6.30 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. Monday to Friday. If at quarter to 11 at night somebody needs access to a GP, where do they go? Well, the HSE um, put in a process called nurse triage. So that means when you ring Northeast Dock at the moment, your details are taken and you're phoned by a nurse triager who goes through and asks you questions and does an assessment. And I suppose our feeling is that the majority of calls can be managed by this. And we see this in other countries, such as even just across the border, where the nurses can advise parents perhaps about their children. They can advise people about symptoms. And many of the complaints can hold off until the next day for patients to see their own GP. So that's how Now, that will continue to happen, and up until 10.30 and 10 o'clock at the weekend night, if you need to be seen, if the nurse treasurer decides that actually you would benefit from actually seeing a GP, you will have that opportunity to have a face-to-face appointment. The changes will be in the, the later hours and overnight when we really have to restrict the service and can only offer a doctor telephone triage service, meaning if the nurse feels that they can't offer you enough advice, and again, the advice may be that you need to go to hospital or perhaps it may be calling an ambulance to do a procedure. If if they feel that that can't happen, then they will pass you to the doctor for doctor advice. But unfortunately, as the service progresses now from the 4th of August, you won't be able to see a doctor after 10pm or after half 10. Well, uh, just on that very point, uh, your press release states uh, the 4th of August. Uh, it's been brought to our attention that, in fact, it's the 2nd of August, because I think the 2nd of August is a Tuesday, but you might just want to... All right, we may want to... Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm let, looking at the press release here. I let, haven't looked at the diary, sure. but it is it is to be the Tuesday after the bank holiday. Sure, weekend. sure. So let's just say the first week in August to, to be on the mm. safe side. Now, uh, you're saying also in your press release that the changes are as a result of acute doctor shortages and underfunding of the service by the HSE. How bad is the situation in that regard? Well, the situation and the manpower crisis in general practice has never been worse. And I think, you know, it's been talked about nationally. People are aware that if they move to the area, if they move to an area like the northeast, any of the big towns, even any of the rural areas, they have no hope of being able to sign on with a GP. And the reason for that is that we're just overloaded. There aren't enough of us on the ground. We know that in less than five years, approximately one-fifth or more of the GP population will have retired. And we expect that actually number to be higher as many GPs are burnt out and decide to take care earlier retirement. The problem is that because of the long hours that they've worked and the challenges they've faced in running their own GP practices, we're not seeing them being replaced. So those GPs who may be coming out of general practice, many of them are opting to go elsewhere. They're going to Australia, they're going to Canada, they're even going to the UK. 
those who are staying are voting with their feet and saying, well, I'm not going to work and run a practice. And many of them are saying, I'm not going to take up a job where I'll have to do out of hours. The daytime hours are long enough. And we know that GPs are working 11 and 12 hour days. They're trying to catch up on work that's been deferred since COVID. And because there are less of us, those of us that are there are having to deal with more and see more patients. So I think we're trying to protect the core service. So by doing that, we're trying to ensure that those GPs who are working in the days are protected without having to be under any obligation to work the overnights. And I don't think anyone would want to feel that the GP you're coming in to see this morning at 9am has been up all night seeing patients and managing northeast dock work. We've always tried to ensure that that doesn't happen because we don't feel it's safe. It's not safe for drivers, it's not safe for pilots, so therefore it definitely shouldn't be safe for your doctor. So that, I suppose, is the big issue. We just don't have the doctors. Now, we would have hired in the past, we would have hired locum doctors, so doctors who weren't working in daytime practice. But our big problem is we can't access those either. And there are a number of reasons. Many doctors who might have come from abroad have changed that pattern since COVID and haven't come back to us since COVID. Many South African doctors would have come over the summer and helped out GPs to allow them to take holidays, but also would have worked red-eye shifts, these overnight shifts. Unfortunately, we're not getting those doctors. Those that we've tried to hire may work outside the EU, and there's a six-month wait before they can be added to the medical register in Ireland. So again, we're facing challenges all the time. And obviously, because because um, there are so few of them, they're in high demand and the costs for hiring them are ever increasing and we just are not receiving the finances from the HSE to support us in doing that. Sure. Doesn't this have serious implications for saving lives? I mean, if somebody gets sick or gets a heart attack or gets a a bleed on the brain, whatever, uh, post uh, 10.30pm at night time and they don't have immediate or quick access to a GP uh, under this type of service, uh, there is the danger that people could die and isn't the underfunding by the HSE in this service basically playing sort of Russian roulette with people's lives? Well, I suppose I would feel that things like heart attacks and strokes shouldn't be coming to us in GP land anyway. That That's acute care that requires know, but when, hospitalization. But when, sure, but when we some... wouldn't tend to call, go to those calls. Those calls would be an ambulance call. So, But I do think there are areas that are going to leave patients disadvantaged. Our palliative care patients you know, won't be able to get a home visit overnight. Um, patients who perhaps die overnight will have to wait until the next morning. The families will have to wait to have that pronouncement of death. So I, in no way are we underestimating the difficulties this is going to create for some patients absolutely it is and uh, and again the you know it is going to create that anxiety for people who are perhaps are at home and are used to being able to have the access to seeing a GP overnight however i still would say that general practice and out of ours general practice was never meant to be a pre-hospital emergency care service and it is of concern to us that that we're now facing a situation in Navan where perhaps it's expected that we would be undertaking that role. We're not trained to provide pre-hospital emergency care. We are there to provide GP sure, care. Sure, but can I make the point uh, yeah. and this is the point I was trying to make at the top of the question was somebody may get a pain in their tummy and they think maybe it's nothing more than they've eaten too much or whatever and while they may think it's nothing serious, they then call a GP and the GP says, well, actually, this is far more serious than you think. I'll have to get you an ambulance. The point I'm making is, while you may be, uh, you you may know what the problem is, uh, Joe and Mary, uh, ordinary person living up a country lane, may not know what it is. And that gap uh, between getting access to a GP and then getting access to an ambulance can be the difference between life and death. And that's the point I'm trying to make about how serious this situation is. So are your members going 
going to lobby the HSE to try and get more money uh, to, if you like, fund this service? Um, we are, and we have been waiting on responses from the HSE with regards to this crisis, and will continue to do so. Again, I suppose to reassure people, you will still be able to talk to a GP on the phone at all stages overnight um, following nurse triage. We would hope that the nurse triage would be able to sort the majority of the issues, and again, if it's something like a chest pain, that they will be directing the patient to hospital and arranging for an ambulance to come out to them. But listen, this is not a decision that has been taken lightly. We in general practice want to care for our patients. We've gone into general practice wanting to be able to to be able to provide care on a 24-hour basis. It's no longer feasible for the same people to be doing the day and the night. And I think it, it comes to a bigger issue where really the Department of Health and the HSC need to review the GMS contract. This is an ancient contract. It's over 50 years old that obliges us to be available on a 24-7 basis, six, three, six, five days a year. There is no other doctor in the country that has this kind of a contract. And I think that's why we're seeing a drop in the numbers of those who want to choose okay. general practice as a career. Okay, I want to move on to the issues at Navin uh, Emergency Department. Uh, you say in your press release that reports that the medical assessment unit will only be accessible by means of a GP referral are a cause of concern. Can you outline to listeners what your concerns are about this? Well, as, as listeners may be aware, there is concern that um, in the immediate future ch- there will be service changes in Navan and that it will no longer have the A&E department that it has and that patients will not be able to self-present to be seen. So they're going to change this to a, a medical assessment unit, but for patients to be seen in it, they, we are on, of the understanding that you will have to have a referral letter from a GP. Now, again, this is where we really feel there's going to be a crisis point. So if somebody has chest pain in the Navan area, they are likely going to just self-refer to the hospital, be seen and be treated in a timely fashion. We feel that this plan that you would have to have a letter from a GP is going to cause delays in that immediate care. So somebody with a stroke, we all know what to do. Fast is the guideline out there. If you see the changes in the face, the speech, everything, you know to attend A&E department straight away or call an ambulance straight away. So we can't have barriers to patient care. And this presumption that GPs and especially in Northeast Dock are going to be there for patients to self-present to us causing a delay in their care and perhaps collapsing and, and perhaps dying at our services is unacceptable and was never negotiated with us, was never discussed with us and we've had to say this quite clearly that we will not be standing over this change in service. Right, that's an interesting development because we had uh, Dr. Jerry McEntee on with us on Tuesday and he was making the point that uh, all the um, senior clinicians involved in the hospital service in Navin uh, approved the downgrading of the emergency department at Navin whereby if people present they'll be referred to Drogheda. But you're saying that GPs have issues with this and that suggests that the medical profession are not at one. Is that the case? Well, I think I suppose my comments would be more based on the access, patient access to services in the hospital. And if there are going to be barriers created where it's expected that they must have a referral letter from a GP, especially in the out of hours where people are, are only likely to present there with an emergency, we don't want to see delays to that. And we also don't want to see patients perhaps arrive expecting emergency care from Northeast Dock in the earlier hours when we can't provide that care and perhaps patient collapse, 
perhaps the patient become really unwell and we feel this is unfair on the patients and on the doctors. I suppose just a few comments on the Navan issue is that um, again we have seen this already in the northeast region in the Monaghan area and again there still needs to be clarification on how this is all going to work. What extra resources would be provided to the, re- the remaining hospitals because as we saw when Monaghan services were reduced and acute services removed no extra services were provided to either Drogheda or Cavan who were expected to take on the care of these patients. All right. Well, it looks like bumpy days ahead for the HSE. We're going to leave it there. That's uh, Dr. Alona Duffy there, who is a GP based in Monaghan and is Medical Director of Northeast Doctors on Call. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you heard earlier on in the week, we discussed the whole cost of living crisis. Tomorrow, a series of protests are taking place around the country at numerous urban centres. The big one will, of course, be in Dublin, kicking off at Parnell Square at one o'clock. Now, it seems there's hardly an aspect of Irish life that the cost of living crisis hasn't impacted, but it's impacting worse on some areas more than most and one area in particular that's uh, suffering is the whole issue of student life and then there are single parents who have young children and they are feeling the squeeze as well. To discuss this I'm joined on the line right now by Beth O'Reilly who is the Vice President for Campaigns with the Union of Students in Ireland and Neve MacDonald of SPARK that's the Single Parents Acting for the Rights of Kids. Uh, Beth first of all uh, student life is tough anyway. Uh, students have very limited income and are usually relying on the bank of mum and dad to get through college. And we've seen rising rents in recent years. How tough is it for students at the moment? Well, it's incredibly difficult for students because we've seen student accommodation rise in cost over the past few years. And it used to just be in the more urban areas like Dublin and Cork. But now we're seeing this as an issue across the board, even in the more rural colleges. But also the student cost of living overall, that's inclusive of fees, materials, you know, um, bills and food, that's risen 25% over the past decade. And the primary grant that's available for students, which is the SUSE grant, it's inaccessible for the majority of students. And it only covers just over half of the expected cost of attending college. So the government are aware that there's a huge gap in what students can afford and what they actually need to spend to attend college, but they haven't put the proper mechanisms in place to ensure that all students have that access to higher education. Well, now, the uh, the ongoing, I suppose, the ongoing perpetual amount of protests outside Leinster House for students looking improvement in grants uh, is something that is as perennial as green grass, but uh, in, in light of the current uh, cost of living crisis and we saw there the ESRI report during the week where they're saying that there could be an extra 70 euro a week per person added on to the cost of living. I mean are you hearing any talk of scenarios whereby uh, people maybe going into second, third or even fourth year at university or college are saying I can't afford this, I'm going to have to opt out. Is it that bad? Yeah, we've actually heard from the students unions on the ground that there's been quite a few deferrals um, as a result of people just not being able to find accommodation. Um, and as well as that, over the summer months, people haven't found accommodation um, um, because a lot of the 
purpose-built student accommodation blocks have been, you know, co-opted to to house Ukrainian refugees, which it is absolutely great that they are being offered a a safe place to stay, but there was no mechanism in place to ensure that students also had a place to stay. So the majority have had to move home as their contracts have been cancelled for the summer months. Neve MacDonald, if I can come on to you, uh, you represent single parents acting for the rights of kids. Um, single parents are usually dependent on welfare to get by, whether it be um, a job seekers allowance or whether it be children's allowance or the various allowances that go with various forms of parenting. How difficult is it for the people you represent? Yeah, we really appreciate you having us on today. I suppose to give a picture, I suppose prior to this um, in inflationary spike and, and the crisis it, it's creating, like um, lone parents were the most vulnerable group in society to homelessness, to uh, fuel poverty, to food poverty. And that's prior to this inflationary crisis. In, um, and the, during the last crash, the changes that were made to one parent family payment has put uh, lone parents further and deeper into poverty. So then we're coming from that very, very low, actually minus base before you come into this in- inflationary spike. And what we're hearing from our members is is that when they go into the supermarket to shop, they have a fixed income. That income cannot change. So the amount of food reduces, the amount of heating reduces, the amount of electricity reduces, because there is nowhere, there is nowhere to cut. There is nowhere to, to cut back. We are already shopping on brand. We are already shopping in little. We know as a lone parent, you are the sole provider in that household. So it is up to you to ensure the lights are on, the food is there, the heat is on, you go to school, there's shoes on the feet, there's coat on the back and there's a school bag. That's all down to us. We know how to budget. We know that we have to check our bank account every day. We plan every day. It's not weekly, it's not monthly, it's daily. And we know that we have to change our electricity provider every year so we get the best deals. We know we have to do that with the gas, with the internet, with everything. We have all the hacks. We have all the tricks because that's how we survive each day. Every penny counts. Every single penny counts. And also, like, I work part-time. I'm a single parent. I was on one parent family recently because I went back to university. So, and even at this, it's still, it is still an absolute struggle and the weight of responsibility because you know there is nowhere to turn. So it is all relies on you. So right now, we see our members, the parents are um, going without meals, they're going out with new shoes, they're cutting back. Like last winter, people had their ovens on to heat. Um, So um, hot water bottles, extra blankets. But also what what this causes is, causes further damp homes. It causes illness in children. It causes respiratory damage. It causes mental health issues for parents because they're dealing with the stress. Alone. Sure, and I, I suppose a social life is just totally out of the question. <laughs> but <laughs> social life. <laughs> Sorry, you're very funny. No, yeah, it's funny, but it's not funny if you know what I mean. No, no, you don't. So I, I don't mean to laugh because we don't have social life. Sure. Do you know what I mean? So you're quite isolated, and then that goes to mental health. So yeah, you're in every night, and and you're thinking about how do I improve this, and there is no way to improve it, and it is so frustrating. But we have been fighting this since the last crash. But this is extremely worse. OK, well, Neve, just just let me put this question to you and I'll, I'll put the question again also to Beth. Um, have Spark, the organisation you represent, have you done any calculations to say that just for you to keep your head above water, uh, to use that metaphorical term, um, what sort of increases in the various uh, government allowances would you need just to, as they say, get by without having to sacrifice any particular area of your expenditure? 
an extra 70 euros per week, right? So, so that's a tenner a day, yeah? Yeah, but, but you'd need an extra tenner a day, absolutely. I would agree with that. And also what we do is you need to look at childcare costs and access to childcare. Because if it, like the government mantras, we need to get out and work, we're supporting you to get work, but they don't provide us with childcare places to do that. A lot of us don't have support, you know, and, and that needs to be increased. But also the threshold in which a lot of these supports are in place. So, um, like, when your child turns seven, because of uh, uh, the Labour Party, when they were in government, they changed one-parent family. So when your child turns seven, you're taken away from one-parent family payment. We were promised proper childcare. When that happened, that never materialised. So um, so we're still waiting on that proper childcare oh, okay. facility. Neve, let me put the same question uh, to Beth. Now, Beth, uh, you represent, as I say, the Union of Students in Ireland, and you're, I suppose you're at the... Um, you're at the, the the mercy of greedy landlords and so on. Um, is ten euro extra per day, or seventy euro per week, or two hundred and eighty euro per month? Is that enough to keep uh, your students at college? Well, realistically speaking, no, because um, the the fees that we pay at the beginning of the year, the three thousand euro fees, they're the highest in the EU. So, what we've been campaigning for alongside the Cost of Living Coalition is for the SUSE grant to be tied to inflation so that there is always a support mechanism available for students regardless of how expensive the cost of living is. And also, we want the abolishment of the €3,000 fees because as such a, a huge amount of money to pay to start of the year, it is the biggest barrier to access and it is hugely costly. It leaves students taking loans from banks and having to pay that back over the course of the year. And these are students who are, who are just starting their journey into higher education. It's an awful lot of responsibility to be paying upwards of, you know, three grand a year for undergraduates, higher than that for postgraduates and international students. Um, so the abolishment of these, the tying of the SUSE grant to inflationary rates, and also ensuring that the government makes an effort to uh, incentivize the building of affordable accommodation for students because currently the only things that we're seeing pop up in cities are the luxury student accommodation blocks the students themselves can't even afford because they've bowling alleys and video game rooms and all this stuff students just don't need um, but but that's all okay. we're seeing getting built So Beth, will the uh, USI membership be out in force around the country tomorrow? Yeah, we're absolutely calling on our students to, to attend these local protests. Um, uh, we ourselves will be at the Dublin one um, and we are so delighted to be joined by some other student unions as well from around the country that are travelling up to attend this protest because it is such an important issue for all of the students in Ireland. And likewise, Neve, will you be calling on single parents who are financially stretched to attend any of the protests? I just kind of wanted to raise just one issue about housing and single parents just before we go. But just to say right now, there's we're back to 10,000, over 10,000 people homeless. And that was pre-pandemic levels. And that's over 2,600 children homeless. And predominantly, majority of those would be coming from single parent families. So, like, the current system of HAP is um, many single parents rely on private rental accommodation and that does not give security of tenure and the rents are ever increasing. So most, uh, the HAP payment, while they said it's gone up, it's still not sufficient. So the top-up actually comes out of your social welfare payment. So I think we, and that has always been the issue for, for single parents when it comes to housing. So I think, yes, on top of our payments, we need 70 years, but also we need a reduction in rents and right. proper public housing as well. But yes, we're calling on all single parents. 
to come out and all families are in solidarity with single parents to come out as well. All right, that's uh, Beth O'Reilly there, the Vice President of Campaigns with the Union of Students in Ireland and Neve MacDonald of Spark, single parents acting for the rights of kids. And the big protest gets underway at 1pm at Parnell Square in Dublin and there are a number of protests taking place at various urban centres around the country. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, would you believe Action Alcohol Action Ireland, the national independent advocate for reducing alcohol harm uh, is basically encouraging men to take up the challenge uh, of what is generally seen by some as a mission impossible and rethink their drinking habits. Um, Some people might say asking men, certain men, to rethink their drinking habits, it's a bit like asking God to stop the rain from falling. Well, let's see what the experts say. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Bobby Smith. He is a HSE addictions specialist and board member with Alcohol Action Ireland. Uh, If you're asking men to rethink their drinking habits, then that suggests something is wrong with the way men drink. Talk us through what the problem is. Uh, good morning, Ken. Um, yeah, um, I suppose the unfortunate news for us men is that alcohol is a major contributor towards both premature death and illness um, in both men and women, but particularly in men. Uh, the World Health Organization would say it's the number one contributor to, to, to uh, preventable illness in men in the 25 to 50 year old sort of age range. Um, and it's you know it's not just people will know obviously about the relationship between very heavy drinking and issues like cirrhosis, but alcohol is a carcinogen, um, and is related to a, a number of cancers, maybe particularly of the mouth and neck, and there probably isn't sufficient awareness of that. Uh, but then there's also I suppose a range of more ordinary uh, health-related consequences for men who are concerned about fitness and health and engage in exercise. Alcohol can adversely impacts sort of recovery time after exercise. Alcohol obviously contains lots of calories. We tend to maybe eat unnecessarily after a few drinks, so suddenly you've consumed 2,000 calories more than you needed to just for a night out. Um, you say that each year in Ireland an estimated 670 men are diagnosed with alcohol-attributable cancers. Uh, is that a high rate, or uh, how does that fit in with the rest of Europe? Um, those calculations um, would be based on the overall sort of prevalence of cancer and then looking at the, at the proportion of cancers that might be alcohol related. And because of our pattern of drinking uh, in Ireland, where we do, um, you know, I suppose amongst Europeans, we're at the heavier end of the drinking spectrum. Of course, Europeans are the heaviest drinkers in the world. So they're not really, the, the, it's, 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 uh, we're outliers as a nation. So yes, those figures are high by international standards. Yeah, I did a series some years ago called Under the Influence uh, for RTE about alcoholism in Ireland. And uh, one thing we established was that when it came to drinking patterns, uh, that we'd say the Irish compared to the French, uh, the French would drink a lot of wine seven days a week. But the Irish pattern tends to be drink practically nothing Monday to Thursday and then consume a lot at the weekend. Is this, if you like... Uh, um, gluttony in drink, for the want of a better description, at the weekend. The fact that we take so much in in such a short space of time, does this contribute to the various illnesses that men suffer from alcohol-related uh, consumption? Um, 
I suppose the, in terms of the, the, the illnesses as and the impact on liver and cancer risk and so on, that really is about the total amount you consume over the year, year on year, uh, decade upon decade. So the, the, the pattern uh, of use within the week doesn't matter massively for those long term health consequences where that binge pattern of drinking, I suppose, has, has more impacts is more in relation to the, the short term impacts of alcohol, because we do see a lot of um, Sudden deaths, I suppose, linked to alcohol, and they can be related to accidents, that can be related to road traffic collisions, falls, drownings, um, which are actually big killers of, of, of young men particularly, and suicides. Um, so not necessarily against a background of chronic heavy use, it's just a, a nice starts off, maybe someone isn't in the best of form, uh, they decide to drink uh, to, to get through it, their bad mood gets even worse, their inhibitions drop and suddenly um, they're, they're taking steps to end their lives. And, and that's more linked to that more heavy episodic drinking. Uh, the picture you paint, uh, to use a phrase, uh, makes uh, alcohol consumption sound like a very uh, dangerous pastime. Um, are you surprised that there isn't more, we'll say, public awareness uh, through various HSE information campaigns to highlight the dangers of alcohol? Um I think it's something we've actually improved on a bit, Ken, over the last few years. There's definitely growing uh, awareness, I think, amongst the public, uh, particularly younger people, uh, about the relationship between alcohol and some of these health consequences we've been chatting about. Um, the, the HSE does have a website, which is, I think, worth checking out, no matter what your level of drinking, called askaboutalcohol.ie. You can do uh, you can enter information into that, uh, to get a, a drink sort of calculator, and you can get some personalized feedback in terms of how your drinking compares with the sort of the the World Health Organization recommended levels and unfortunately um given our style of drinking in Ireland you know lots of us are in the the risky categories okay if i was to ask you to sum up in very brief succinct terms i mean what exactly are you saying here are you saying that if you drink we'll say uh, 20 pints or even you know 15 shorts over a weekend you should simply drink less or if you do drink just tr- take it we'll say over a longer period of time instead of consuming your pint in half an hour you do it over an hour what exactly are you saying here Definitely saying that the goal should be to reduce uh, your alcohol consumption, no matter what your level of alcohol consumption, that there's health benefits there. If you're drinking 20 pints a week, certainly there's value in reducing that. The guidelines would sort of say you're in a risky zone once you actually uh, drink more than eight pints a week. Uh, so any steps you can move in that direction is positive. And on, on individual nights out, uh, really you're moving into, unfortunately, this is bad news now for Irish men, but you're moving into a zone of escalating risk once you have that third point even. All right. Well, that's uh, sound advice, and hopefully uh, people listening to this programme will take it on board. There you go. That's uh, Dr Bobby Smith, HSE Addictions Specialist and Board Member with Alcohol Action Ireland. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. I've still some comments to get over from yesterday. Hopefully we'll get through them before the end of the programme. Now, returning to a story that uh, seems uh, like it's never going to stop, and it is the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a follow-on from the British decision to exit the European Union following their referendum back in 2016. 
And uh, the UK attempts to override parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol are nothing to do with the North and are rather a result of internal Conservative Party politics, uh, according to... uh, Neil Richmond, who is the Fine Gael spokesperson on European affairs, and he says that the British government's actions are disappointing and reckless, and he joins me on the line right now. So, uh, Neil, many people think that this is the DUP putting the squeeze on the Conservatives because they don't want a Northern Ireland protocol because they believe that it isolates NI from GB and that they see it as another incremental step towards a united Ireland. But you're saying this has more to do with internal party politics uh, going on within the Conservative Party. Explain. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing at the moment is we have a Prime Minister who's in quite a weak position. He's had weeks and months of scandals in relation to Partygate and various breaches of COVID protocol. um, And then He's facing, obviously, plenty of domestic difficulties in relation to cost of living crisis. And it's a little bit more exasperated in the UK than, say, we have here at a much higher inflation rate. So what we've seen a distinct trend, Ken, over the last number of years, and indeed potentially over the last number of decades, you've covered it closer than I've been watching, is that whenever there's difficulty, it's a really easy thing for, particularly in the British Tory party, to have a go at the EU, you know, to attack the EU. In this case, over the last few years, it's to bring up Brexit, it's to make an intervention on the protocol. And we have a couple of things happening here. We have, as I said, a weakened Prime Minister, but you also have an ambitious Foreign Secretary who is looking at a weak Prime Minister thinking, well, she'd like to be the Prime Minister in the future. And how's the best way to secure and shore up a core bulk of support? It's actually to appeal to the Eurosceptic wing of the Conservative Party, the European Research Group, the ERG, the hardline hawks who wanted a no-deal Brexit. Now they've been, over the last couple of years, very good at using the DUP and leaning on the DUP, but also very good at dropping DUP and indeed wider unionist concerns when it suits them. So I simply do not accept the contention by the Foreign Secretary this week that this move to break international law and act unilaterally is about and sit the standoff and storm and really for them. I think it's absolutely about the internal battles in Westminster. And it's really, really sad, to be honest, at this stage to once again see the people of Northern Ireland, Unionist, Nationalist and other, simply being used as a plaything in domestic English politics. Sure. So to put this in simplistic terms, Neil, if I'm right in saying what Boris Johnson is doing here is he's appeasing the hardliners, the real Eurosceptics in the party, because if he doesn't, they in turn will turn on him and when the next vote of confidence in Boris Johnson comes up, if he doesn't appease them, he will lose that support and he will be voted out as leader of the party. Is that it in a nutshell? In a nutshell, plus it's also buttressing the leadership ambitions of his main rival at this stage, Liz Truss. So I found something really interesting, Ken. Um, back in a number of months ago, Andrew Bridgen, the arch Brexit here, he's, he's the guy who claimed he was entitled to an Irish passport simply because he was English. Oh yeah, I remember that one all right, yeah. Yeah, so he demanded Boris Johnson's resignation. He sent a confidence letter in, and I've no doubt he voted no confidence uh, in Boris Johnson the other week when they had their motion. But he was out on Monday morning debating and defending the Prime Minister against me on another radio station. So it, it, is, a, it is a way to work to ensure that the hardline base come into line by appealing to their most basic interests. Um, and it's certainly something that... I think, unfortunately, we've seen a couple of times over the last uh, last number of years, and we're going to see more of, because as soon as it came into the headlines, the, the latest move, it's gone out and we've been distracted. British politics have been distracted once again by, you know, refugee flights to Rwanda being grounded and whatever else domestic issues is at hand. 
I mean, at this stage, um, what can the EU Commission do to put the squeeze on the British to to back off, so to speak, and keep the Northern Ireland Protocol in place? Well, I think what the European Commission has reacted with this week is, as expected and as desired, we've seen legal action unpaused or about to be unpaused, though it had been paused in the autumn, and we've seen the, the preparation of new legal action and the quite clear message being sent from the European Commission that, yes, we acknowledge there are issues within the protocol, but we want to work through the protocol to make it easier. We want to listen to the concerns of unionists, but more importantly, listen to the, the very real concerns of businesses who are being squeezed. But let's be honest, there is no alternative. The alternatives proposed by the British government this week are absolutely nonsensical. And we've been back and forth over this for the last six years. And the D, indeed, even if it was about the parties in the North, um, the DUP aren't presenting any any proposals or any realistic proposals. And just today in the Belfast Telegraph, we see Commissioner Shevskovich going through how the European Commission can work with the British government to alleviate any checks coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. But it all comes back to the fact, Ken, due to the nature of the Brexit chosen by this British government, aped on, as I said, by those hardline Eurosceptics in the ERG, Steve Baker, Andrew Bridgen, Mark Francois, Bill Cash, the names sadly roll off my tongue at this stage, been back and forth in so long. They are choosing the hardest possible Brexit, despite the clear evidence that this is going to cause damage to the British economy and is clearly causing damage not just to the EU-UK relationship but sadly to the Anglo-Irish relationship too. Yeah, the likes of Bill Cash and Andrew Bridgen and Jacob Rees-Mogg who've all become sort of, if you like, uh, Brexit celebrities for the want of a better description. Do you think they get or understand the mess that they're creating in the north of Ireland by the stand they are taking? No, not only do they not get it, Ken, I don't think they care. Um, I remember throughout the early parts of the negotiation, Jacob Rees-Mogg as a backbencher and chair of the ERG was waxing lyrical about how they had to protect the precious union. But on the opportunity as a member of the UK's Brexit Committee to travel to Ireland, to travel to Northern Ireland, he simply didn't show up. It took him three or four years after the referendum, I think it was 2018, 2019, to finally come to Northern Ireland. And at that stage, um, he only came at the beck and call of Sky News. They haven't invested the time or the care and consideration into the very delicate situation in Ireland that the likes of Michelle Barnier did, that the likes of um, Marashevskovich has. And every week we see, be it previously Helen McEntee or Thomas Byrne currently or before Mairead McGuinness coming over with delegations of European leaders and European politicians to show them just how delicate things are on the border, how much of an open border it is, how important it is to make sure everything continues to flow, not just easily, but safely. And having and in a manner, a small amount of checks at three or four ports of entry into Northern Ireland from Great Britain is far more preferable on so many levels than the potential of necessary checks across the 499 kilometre border that runs across our island. Well, now, this legal action that the European Commission um, recommenced against uh, the British this week, uh, the signs are that this could run on for a year, maybe two years before there's a settlement. And the DUP have said time and time again uh, they are not going to go into an executive with Sinn Féin because they don't like the Northern Ireland Protocol. They want it basically uh, abolished. So are we facing a situation where the DUP is going to wait until the outcome of this prolonged court action before they themselves make a decision on whether or not uh, they go into an executive with Sinn Féin and therefore this leaves Northern Ireland once again in a sort of a political vacuum. 
Yeah, and there's a couple of things there again, and it runs the absolute crux, no matter why I believe this week's move is actually nothing to do with getting the executive back up and running and getting the DUP back inside the tent. Because the legislation proposed by the British government, it's not a quick thing. It'll take at least 12 to 15 months. It, there will be a rebellion of some extent in the House of Commons against it if the government pushes forward it. And I've no doubt it'll fail in the House of Lords, and that'll extend it quite um, to quite a lengthy period. And of course, as you mentioned, the ongoing European action, that's, that, that won't be finished any time quickly. So I don't know necessarily what the DUP think they can achieve. Obviously, under the terms of the, I think it's the St. Andrews Agreement, there has to be another election in Northern Ireland if by November if an assembly isn't able to elect a speaker and ministers and everything else like that. So the DUP are going to, are really, you know, once again, they painted themselves into the tightest of corners. And the problem with the DUP throughout the Brexit process, and you could say perennially throughout their existence, is their distinct ability to consistently say no. Bear in mind, Ken, this is the party that pushed Brexit the hardest um, in Northern Ireland, who contributed a considerable amount of fundraising efforts to the wider UK campaign on Brexit. And they're now in a situation that six years on from the referendum, almost to the month, They've yet to propose any solutions. They have two years holding the balance of power in Westminster and they opposed everything. Theresa May's backstop wouldn't have created the situation in the Irish Sea. It would have been a customs arrangement for all of the UK and the DUP even said no. Yeah, there used to be that line years ago that if the word no was removed from the English dictionary, Ian Paisley would have been speechless. But just one final question, Neil. Uh, We had an Oireachtas committee. It's the Oireachtas Good Friday uh, committee, the implementation of, uh, was in Washington, D.C. this week. Um, are you getting any word as to what the Americans are saying about the conduct of the British in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol and any possible uh, difficulties that may arise in a U.S.-U.K. trade deal? Yeah, so I had a good call actually up through the night with um, the chair of that committee, Fergus O'Dowd, and my colleague John McGahan, who are still in, still just travelling home from Washington. They they undertook the, the three-day visit. It was a really important visit. They met with um, congressional leaders and Senate leaders from all parties, and there was a quite clear message being sent back. And there was actually a statement released by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair, Bill Keating, stating the very real concern of American legislators about the actions of the British government, the need to protect not just the integrity of the Good Friday Agreement, but also the terms of the protocol we saw once again, comments from Richie Neal, who visited Ireland only a couple of weeks ago, the chairperson of the Congressional Ways and Means Committee. And that's extremely important, not just because he's such a good friend to Ireland, but he also, his committee is the one that looks after trade deals and will give the, the passage of any trade deals. All these people have mentioned are extremely close allies to Joe Biden. We did see a bit of pushback this week in the Brexiteer press where John Bolton, the former Trump advisor and Bush um, cabinet member said that Biden was going in the wrong direction, but he was very much a, a lone voice in a sea of Democrat and Republican voices who stressed their very real concerns, just the same as the prime ministers of Japan, of Canada, of all other G7 leaders made it very clear to Boris Johnson at the time of the internal market bill that these actions are extremely retrograde. We have a British government threatening to break law, international law and we have a British government on top of that parallel in relation to the fights to Rwanda threatening to leave the European Court of Human Rights. The only other country to do that can is Russia. Right. It sounds like a right political circus altogether. We're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Fine Gael spokesperson on European Affairs, Senator Neil Richmond. More to come. We'll take a break. 
Okay, the Navin Hospital row rumbles on and uh, to get another perspective on where we're at, I'm joined on the line right now by Sinn Féin TD from Meath West, Johnny Gwerk, and uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles. Uh, lads, before I get into the closure of Navin Emergency Department or indeed the, uh, I suppose, the reduction in the provision of services at the Navin ED, I just want to talk to you about that story we ran this morning and it is that the Northeastern Doctors on Call service will implement a reconfigured service providing urgent GP out of our cares to patients on a face-to-face basis until half past 10 on weekday evenings and 10pm at weekends. Uh, Shane, if I can start with you, uh, there's growing concern that first of all, uh, this could put uh, patients or lives at risk and that secondly, the HSE seems to be turning a blind eye when it comes to funding. So, I mean, what can you, who's a member of Fianna Fáil, that's in government, can do to reverse this? Good morning, Ken. And those points are points that I actually made on Monday to all of the top clinicians in this country that were in that room with us on Monday discussing our hospital in Navin. Because the Dock on Call, Northeast Dock on Call service, have expressed these concerns already and had been flagging these last autumn. And I made these points in the Shannon saying that we needed to respond to this, that there is pressure on the system as is, that we have pressures on our GPs. People listening in, whether they be in Navan or Trim or in Louth, will know the pressure in accessing GP services as things stand. And they advised their concerns in terms of then being able to operate a GP referral system for a medical assessment unit in Navan because of the pressure that the system was under. So I think this is a very important point in the context of what you've been debating all week on your show, but it's a point I made forcefully on Monday to the HSE as well, because it goes to the heart of the implementation of a system that they want to do, but that the structure is on the ground. And that's where, we, that's where this has to be now debated, is on the ground, and it is not being addressed. And so the interjection by Doc on call, not just this morning, Ken, but it was last autumn as well. Okay. Well, well, unless, we're, unless we're facing up to for the investment is needed, and so when the when the minister in on Tuesday morning in in rejecting the proposals that were being put forward, used the language of a system that was under pressure and needed resources. He admitted that. He said, we need to put resources into the health service. And this is about boosting health services in Navan and in Meath. And so I very much welcome the fact that we have professionals come and say, we need investment. And if they do, well, then we need to make sure that the minister and the government provide them with the investment that they require. Well, Johnny Gwerk, if I can put uh, that point to you, I mean, you're introducing uh, a motion in the Dáil, I think it's next week, in relation to the Navin Hospital A&E, and I suppose the North East Doctors on Call fits into the whole, I suppose, gambit of the provision of medical services in the North East. Um, on the basis that Chain would be saying the same thing as you, are you surprised that Fianna Fáil in government and the fact that the Minister for Health is a Fianna Fáil man, Stephen Donnelly, are not doing doing more to address this? Yeah, well, um, uh, Ken, thanks and good morning. Um, Ken, I I would ask Shane, who who is he talking for? Is he talking for himself? Is he talking for Thomas Byrne, who agrees 100% with Jerry McIntyre? Is he talking for the Minister for Health? Is he talking for the the, the government? Or who is he talking for? Okay, Shane, answer that one. Well, Ken, let's be very clear. When I talk 
Johnny, and you were in the room on Monday. I talked forcefully. I have to say, you were very sheepish in the room on Monday, Johnny. You didn't do a lot of talking. You didn't do a lot of posing. I had my preparation done for the meeting on Monday. I didn't hear you ask the pertinent questions. I was extremely hard in representing the people, asking where had the HSD done their homework in terms of the change in planning regs over the last 10 years that is going to centralise population in Navan and Drogheda environs, the two areas where the health service is under pressure. Where is the HSE in addressing the dock-on-call service, what we're discussing here this morning? That I was the person who asked that on Monday. Where is the HSE in delivering what they're calling a rapid transport unit to get the people from our area to Drogheda to wait for longer waiting times? I am not happy with the answers that are coming, and that's why I made sure that Stephen Donnelly was not accepting the proposals that were being put forward on Monday. We need to see a better health service. And on top of that, on top of that, there's a lot of debate this weekend, and you put this point to, to Jerry McEntee on the interview on, 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 on Tuesday. Tuesday yeah. closing the, uh, so I just want to finish this point then, in terms of closing the doors. And as he quite rightly said, there's no doors closing. And in fact, I think all of us that were in the room on Monday, we actually also saw the other side of the good side of Navin Hospital in terms of the investment. The investments in new laboratories, the investments in radiology, the new theatre development coming online, the expanded recovery room, the new day wards. There's a huge amount of investment in the hospital and I think people need to be aware of that as well, that we have a very good functioning hospital and one to be proud okay. of. OK, let me put that point then to Johnny. So according to Shane there, Johnny, you were in the room and you stayed quiet. What do you say to that? I'll tell you, um, Ken, I, I listened and I learned. And I'll tell you what I did learn, Ken. If we didn't, if we if we had any doubt before today, the the management in Drogheda said they can't handle the pressure that this is going to bring on them. The the doctor on call said that they can't handle this pressure that it's going to bring on them. So if we were in any doubt, um, Ken, before today, that that this needs to be scrapped, that this needs to be dead in the water. What we need is is investment in Avon Hospital. Um, we need. We, we, we need proposals to protect and enhance services in Avon Hospital, and that's the motion that we're putting before the Dáil next Tuesday. So maybe Shane could get on to his, his, his min- three ministers in County Mead, get on to the Minister for Health, and get on to the government and back these proposals next Tuesday evening. That's Shane, what we can do. Shane, we, yeah. cannot, we cannot accept downgrading the services sure. in Avon Hospital. They've been chipping away at these services for the last 10 years, and we in Sinn Féin will, will stand up and fight tooth and nail that there's no more downgrading of services in Navin Hospital. Okay, Shane, but I want to put a point. I want to put a point to Shane. Shane, you know, you're a journalist by profession. You understand how the communications business works. We had a situation on Tuesday where Jerry McEntee was saying one thing on behalf of the HSE, and the Department of Health was saying the complete opposite. Would you accept that this has been a communications fiasco? Yeah, I think the communications is, is, is atrocious, uh, and and that's why. Uh, when we were at the last uh, Navin Hospital meeting, I welcomed the fact that we were getting everyone into the room for the first time ever. That it wasn't a case of just having politicians on debating or whatever. And so I actually welcomed the fact that Jerry McEntee was on your show on Tuesday morning and spoken a very measured and calm way in telling people all of the services that are in Navin, all of the enhanced services that are coming that Johnny's talking about, they actually are coming, and put forward his position as a medical person, as a clinician. Because ultimately, we need to hear from the medical side as well. I mean, who do we trust with our people's lives? Do we trust Johnny? Is he a doctor? No. Do we trust Jerry McEntee? Yes. But we also have to acknowledge that the implementation of any proposals cannot happen because the capacity 
in other areas doesn't exist. And if you look at the minister's statement on Tuesday morning, he quite clearly said that. He said, I have listened to the concerns of the clinicians in Navin and they have made points to me. But I've also, and this is the line used, I have also listened to the clinicians in other hospitals who have said to me that we are under such pressure, we cannot accept these proposals. Sure. And he has accepted their point of view and said, OK. okay. And so now we, do, we need to see, as I have said, the doors to this hospital are not closing. If anything, I'm after reading out the huge amount of improvements that have happened. 21,000 people a year go through Navin ED. 19,000 of those are what are referred to as low-complex cases that yeah. can still be uh, uh, maintained. Yeah, Shane, just, 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 just let Johnny in there. OK, Johnny, you wanted to make another point. Oh, no, I think um, Shane would talk for Ireland. But he needs, he needs to get his act together. He needs to get behind our motion next Tuesday, get the Minister for Health behind this motion, get the government behind this motion, and stand up for the people of Mead that elected us. We were never more needed by the people of Mead. We need to stand up for the people of Mead and be counted, and we have no better chance to do it than if these services go, they're gone, and they're gone for good. Okay. This, this government, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, have been chipping away at services at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan for the last 10 years, and now enough is enough. Okay, well, no. let me put the point to Shane. Shane, I mean, if you're opposed to this downgrading of the emergency department at Navin and we had Helen McEntee on yesterday more or less saying the same thing uh, we had Thomas Byrne on more or less saying the same thing then will Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs back the Sinn Féin motion in the Dáil next week? Okay, so Johnny's saying a couple of things there, Kenny. He's saying that Shane would talk for Ireland. The problem for Johnny is Shane talks sense. And, <laughs> you know, we can come on and have you, you know, simplistic talk and say, you know, stand up and fight and so forth. And Johnny likes to, you know, kind of pigeonhole this as Fianna Fáil closing a hospital. If that was the case, the hospital would be gone. Fianna Fáil actually stopped the downgrading now on two occasions in the last six months. I know, but the question I asked six, you was, no, will, no, will Fianna Fáil and the Fine Gael TDs back, back the Sinn Féin motion in the Dáil next week? I'm not in the doll. Ken, I haven't even seen the motion. I hope that when the debate happens, that Fianna Fáil TDs get up and actually defend, as I do in the Shannon, the position of Navin Hospital and call for the future and further investment in Navin Hospital. That's what I would expect of my colleagues, because that's what I do for the people in the Shannon and did so this week again. And I think it's very important that, you know, rather than being divisive, about this, that we get all on the same page and we make sure that the services that are required come, but also acknowledge, also be actually honest with people, because nobody wants to talk about the good things. Uh, I have okay. I've outlined sh- sh- today, sh- no, I want to make this point. Very quick, very quick, you Shane. Made the, you, made the, you made the point to Jerry in terms of trying to say that the doors are closing, and I'm making the point that investment has actually come to NAV, and there was another over a million announced only last month, and so when you talk about the things like the new laboratory, the new theatres, the expanded sure. recovery rooms, they're real things, uh, Ken, that deliver real services Absolutely. for people, well, just, and that uh, just, has to be acknowledged. Sh- sure, Shane. Just let me put the last question to Johnny Gwerk of Sinn Féin. You heard Shane there saying, here's a chance now for all the parties in the county of Mead, whether they're in Mead West or Mead East, that you guys should engage in what would be sometimes known as a love-in and club together and fight for the county rather than get involved in political point scoring. Isn't that a fair point, Johnny? That's fair enough, um, Ken, but the problem is, Ken, uh, Shane has one opinion. His 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 ministerial colleague in Mead has a completely opposite opinion. I'll, I'll read the motion out to Shane if he doesn't know. Maybe he needs to learn uh, that we need to protect and enhance emergency and critical care services at Navin Hospital. That's what the motion is, uh, Shane. Will you get your party? Will you get the Minister for Health? Will you get the government to back that next Tuesday? That's how you stand up for the people of Mead, Shane. Not talking for Ireland like you've done for the last 10, 15 minutes.
Okay, listen, lads, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, uh, I'd love to continue this discussion. I'm glad to see there's love and happiness in the royal county of Meath when it comes to this uh, this issue. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator um, Shane Castles and Johnny Gwerk, Sinn Féin TD from Meath West. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we have uh, plenty of comments to get through which are left over from yesterday's programme, including those uh, that you've sent in this morning. So hopefully we'll get to them before the end of the programme. Now, following on from the package of measures announced in recent months to provide support to Irish farmers, the Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Charlie McConnellogue, has launched a €56 million fodder support scheme. In theory, this is good news, but it's it's tough times for certain farmers and to find out more as to where the farming community is at, I'm joined on the line again this week by uh, IFA President Tim Cullinan. First of all, Tim, how tough is the increase in, we'll say, the cost of diesel and the cost of grain adding on to, we'll say, the, the, the cost of living expense that farmers are going through? Absolutely, Ken. And uh, obviously, you know, farmers are experiencing massive inflation, you know, we just see it earlier this week. The price of fertilizer has increased by actually 280 percent. And you know, if you look at it, fertilizer is the main ingredient ingredient in driving production across all sectors in farming. The price of feed, direct feed, is 130 or 40 percent increase, and obviously a massive increases in the price of fuel as well. So, you know, huge challenge there for farmers. And you know, you just mentioned there the schemes announced by the minister. So I'd have to say the, the first one, the initial one, the 10 million euros or 400 euros per hectare for planting new land or, or grassland into tillage this year, that has uh, worked quite well. My understanding is we hope that there will be an, an increase of approximately 5 or 6% of the amount of cereals in the country for the harvest this year, which is a help. I suppose the, the more recent one, as you like I said, the 55 million or 1,000 euros per farmer any farmer that harvests up to 10 hectares of, of silage. But I think this is very, very important. It'll go some way along the way of relaying uh, the extraordinary costs the farmers have to bear. But, you know, they are substantial costs and, you know, everything has to be done. And, you know, obviously we're looking at more initiatives there as well to ensure that there is enough of, of feed and fodder in the country for the coming winter because... Um, Look, I'm out here on buses today at a meeting and again we're hearing you know, about the very, very serious situation still in Ukraine and the diff- difficulty in getting cereals out of there and obviously that's impacting on the price of cereals right across the world at the moment. Um, 56 million euro, I think the payment rate there is around 100 euro per acre. Um, is that enough to deal with uh, the current difficulties that Irish farmers are going through? Look, it's not going to, as I say, the the, 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 the price of in fertiliser has increased by 280%. So obviously it's not enough. And, uh, you know, we always, as we always try to explain to the Minister, you know, this is a very critical, serious situation. And uh, obviously, you know, we would like to see if there was more. But look, it's definitely a help in alleviating the problems that's on the ground at the moment, in particular in the livestock and the sheep sector, you know. And, and look... There's some dairy farmers as well that would have other um, concerns on the farm uh, experiencing uh, problems in, in, in dealing with this massive inflation as well. Are you hearing any stories of hardship uh, endured by farmers since the war in Ukraine got underway? In, in Ireland? Yes, yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Look, obviously, it's putting more pressure on the system. We already had been seeing a huge price inflation prior to the war, but uh, the war has added substantially, obviously, to both to the price of fertilizer and and feed and fuel as well. And uh, look, no individual cases, obviously. So, luckily, it has been a good growing season. So, the climatic conditions have been good for growing grass, and obviously, so. We wouldn't be hearing of those issues later on in the year, but you know it's an opportune time now that you know everybody has to try and get as much fodder saved now you know, during the growing season because you know I believe so we are going to be under pressure with the price of cereal and uh, the supply of cereal as well. And of course, the other concern, Ken, is you know because now the sanctions uh, in Europe on on Russia with the availability of gas and oil, like the manufacture and supply of fertiliser for next year is obviously a concern. So I think, look, there needs to be more measures put in place by the EU um, to ensure that there is a supply of, of fertiliser coming into the system for the coming year. You're in Brussels. Next year. Yeah, sure. You're in Brussels. Uh, obviously, I know uh, IFA leaders are over and back to Brussels every other week on various issues. But um, what are you hearing in Brussels about concerns in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol? And I'm talking specifically in the way that milk is processed in this country, because uh, I understand that milk in the north comes south for processing. And I think it goes back to the north and even may come back south again. Are there concerns there that uh, if the so-called expected uh, trade borders are put in place between the north and south, it will have uh, an impact on farming. Yeah, absolutely. There is concerns, and, and, and you're absolutely right. Approximately 40% of the milk produced in Northern Ireland is processed in the south, and obviously we have trade ourselves for live animals going up to Northern Ireland. And so that, that trade, cross-border trade, is very, very important both for ourselves in the south and for farmers in Northern Ireland as well. Look, there's a lot of worry and concern there at the moment So why Boris Johnson would want to go and um, move away from an agreement that was put in place in 2020. You know, this protocol was agreed and uh, originally the plan of putting the border down the Irish Sea and that there would be proper checks on produce coming into Northern Ireland was to ensure so that we would not have to go back to a land border. And of course, look, we'd have to say as well, Northern Ireland, I would have thought, you know, would have landed in a reasonable situation where they could continue to trade within the EU and also continue to trade with the UK as well. And um, as I say, so all those regulations and, and agreements were put in place at the time. And look, I believe that the, gov- the British government should be honouring that agreement. And uh, I think you know, the EU have already said you know, they won't be found wanting, or the Irish government either. So obviously there may be a few issues there would need to be resolved. Okay. You know, in Northern Ireland, there's a number of issues there, right. with so, farmers. But, but, but I think, look, they can be resolved without actually changing all of the, the agreement that was put in place. Just two questions before I let you go, uh, Tim, because I know you've come out of a meeting in Brussels to talk to us and we appreciate yeah. that. I mean, the government is offering €56 million Euro as part of a fodder package. It's now June. Do you expect the government to, if you like, issue more money uh, as the autumn rolls into winter uh, and if this war in Ukraine doesn't sort itself out and the price of oil and everything and diesel doesn't come down, that you'll be going back cap in hand looking for more money? Well, suppose, look, Ken, we have to monitor the situation and we'll be liaising with our farmers on the ground. And you know, if we believe 
that farm, there is a requirement for more funding there, well, then we will. But, but just on the funding, like there has been a shortfall in the money that is in the new CAP reform for, for prickler, suckler and sheep farmers and tillage farmers, and we're consistently explaining that to the Minister, and he has to come forward with funding around that in the coming months for the uh, new reform that will be kicking in next year. All right. And finally, this €56 million Euro fodder support scheme, if there are farmers listening to this programme in the Loudmead area and they want to apply, where do they go? They apply, obviously, to the Department of Agriculture. It is a, fair, a fairly straightforward scheme. All a farmer has to do is be able to demonstrate that they have harvested at least 10 hectares of, of silage during the growing season this year. OK, we'll have to leave it there. That's uh, Tim Cullinan, President of the Irish Farmers Association. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I just want to get to some of your comments before we move on to our next item. Regarding energy prices, Tommy says he's just received his electricity bill. The charges from the government are higher than the actual electricity charge itself. It's ridiculous and the government needs to take action. On fuel prices, Mary wants to know why the government are not taking steps to cap petrol prices at the pump, given the Shocking prices we are seeing around the country. Regarding the ESI report, which indicates that another hike in energy prices could add €70 per week to the average household bill, Shona from Drogheda was in touch and she says, how are householders going to afford that? We have already been subjected to hikes. This government is not in touch with reality. Now, moving on, you may have heard that overnight the government and unions failed to reach agreement at public sector pay talks at the Workplace Relations Commission. The negotiations broke up at around 3am but ended without a resolution. So to assess where we're at here, I'm joined on the line by uh, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, columnist with the Meath Chronicle and indeed a proud Meath man himself. Gavin, uh, when they say that the gap is significant, are we looking at 1%, 3%? What, what, what is your assessment of from what you're hearing? I suspect we're looking at the wider end of that, Ken. Good morning to you and your listeners. Um, I think the unions had made it fairly clear when they were going in. And in hindsight, maybe things were always destined to end up the way that they've done because the unions had made fairly clear that the whole reason they were looking for these pay deals to be revised was because um, inflation had just grown at such a rate that no one could potentially have foreseen that they were justified in going back and asking for higher level increases because a pay increase of, for example, for argument's sake, a pay increase of 2%, does very little if the cost of living is rising by 8% in that same year. So they'd gone back looking for something which was effectively much closer to the true rate of inflation, which we now know is around 8%. And that was simply a level that the government was never going to countenance. And so they, they sort of danced around it effectively uh, for the guts of a week, trying to see was there some middle ground, some landing zone that they could both uh, eventually land at and be happy with. But but as it turns out, that wasn't the case. And they decided last night that, that there was no justification for staying in there when the two sides were going to remain so far apart. Well, on the basis, as you say there, that uh, 8% is like the sort of the the guiding figure to work towards, if uh, public servants got an 8% pay rise, what would this do in terms of uh, adding on costs to the national expenditure bill annually? Well, the, the general national spending bill every year is something in the region of 65 or 70 million billion. Now, obviously, a lot of that is on capital spending and on the funding of other services and the likes. But you could take that maybe as a ballpark. Around half of that is, is spent on the pay of the 330,000 or so public servants. So if you were to add 8% onto that, then you'd effectively be increasing public spending 
by something in the region of about €3 billion Euro a year, which obviously is a fairly significant amount of money. Uh, the, the workers would say, well, that's what we need. If that's, if that's what we need just to, to keep track, you know, we're, we're running to stand still right now, so, so that's what we need. But it would be a, a fairly significant dent, which, which is probably why the Department of Public Expenditure has effectively decided that it's a bridge too far, because, you know, this is all, any extra money that might have been assigned as a result of these pay talks would be coming out of whatever funding the government has um, to, to prepare for the budget in October, which is something that they're already working on. It's, it's four months away, but they're already still working on it. And that was already looking like it was going to be a dicey enough operation because there might have been whatever uh, higher public pay bill might have come out of these talks had it been successful. There's also separate demands from elsewhere within government to make sure that there's a cut in tax rates and an increase in tax bans so that workers uh, who aren't directly on the public payroll can still get some benefit or get to keep more of the money that they earn. Um, there's also, of course, going to be demands to increase public spending in other non-pay areas because, for example, if you're intending to build X number of, of homes each year and construction inflation is running that much higher, then you have to set aside more money to deliver the same units afterwards. So there's always going to be pressure from that side. And then, of course, there's a separate question of how you meet all of your climate uh, obligations as well and the extra money that's going to have to go into um, you know, the, the renovation or the upgrade or the, or the overhaul of services to make sure that they're run yeah. in an environmentally sustainable way. So all of that was going to have to be done in October now, and the government may at least have hoped that the public pay question might have already been boxed off, but, but now it seems it hasn't been, which means now you have all of those really crucial demands uh, all coming up at the same time, and no indications just yet from the government as to how much money they're actually going to have to play with in October to, to try and make all of those dreams come true. Well, on that very point, under the current agreement, public sector workers received a, a 1% pay increase last year, and there's a further 1% due in October. Is the government playing hardball here just to see what the state of the finances are going to be come October in the hope that the war in Ukraine is over, the price of oil comes down, and therefore the recent increases in the cost of living we've seen in recent months Will, will will stall and that therefore they'll have a little bit more wriggle room if you like. Uh, I don't know if that would be the direct intention if the government is deliberately just trying to, to you know kick, kick these talks into touch in the hope that things will be better. I mean certainly it will be a useful byproduct if they end up not having a, a deal out of all of this if the talks now effectively expire if the current deal has to run its course and, and something happens in Ukraine to end the whole thing to our satisfaction in the meantime and all these pressures go away it would certainly be very useful but I, I think by, by most assessments, and if you look at what central banks are doing, we're now going to be looking into a period where interest rates are going to be raised quite a bit to try and take the heat out of all of this, which in turn is going to take the heat out of the economy as well. So you, you would argue from a, a, just a situation of prudence that the government would like for everything to be boxed off and taken care of quite early. And We are going to find out in the next couple of weeks in, in what's called the summer economic statement how much money the government thinks it's going to have uh, to be able to de- devote to new measures in, in October's budget. But it, it's not likely to be a very large sum, considering that they're going to have to increase public spending to keep rate with inflation. Right. They're going to have to try and increase public pay, have to do the climate stuff, and have some sort of a tax relief package as well, which is likely to include, by the way, not only payroll issues, but also, you know, is there scope to change VAT or excise on fuels sure, or home sure, sure. or all those things too. So there's an yeah. awful lot of demand. So they might be hoping that things would work out better, but I don't think it would be a strategy to kick for touch. Yeah, and sure. Just, just two more questions, Gavin, before I let you go. I mean, this breakup of the talks at 3am this morning, isn't this all part of the courtship? They go in, they sit down, they negotiate across the table, it breaks up, and sooner or later they'll be back around the table again, and they'll 
will haggle over a percent here and a percent there, and eventually they will always reach a deal. Isn't that the case? Uh, well, I mean, if, if they don't reach a deal, then um, you, you basically, if they don't reach a deal at some point, then you're into a very rocky territory where there'd be no guarantee against any kind of redundancies in the public sector, which is the precise reason why unions always sign up to this. So I suspect that, yes, come what may, at some point, there is going to have to be some deal, even if it's not a deal that many of the unions or the workers themselves actually like, because having having a bad deal is better than having no deal at all. And um, On the choreography or the whole dance of it breaking up at 3am, I suspect you're, you're right on that front, and there's always been a suspicion that sometimes when, when two sides go into talks and they know that there is scope for a deal or they know that there is no scope for a deal, they go in and they establish quite early that there's no prospect for a deal. Right. But it's in the interest of both sides to stay in there until late hours and make it look like they're still trying to coax, coax each other down from the crest of a hill and nothing ever happens. There's always been a suspicion among those who cover all these industrial talks that often a deal is done inside the first couple of days, but that they're going in just to keep up appearances so that it yeah. looks like they're really dragging the last bits out of each other. So at 3 a.m., I can't imagine what was uh, what was on the table at 2am that wasn't at 3am but, but nonetheless I'm sure it won't okay. be too long before we see another attempt to get them back in. Okay, uh, Gavin, I just want to refer to the spat uh, in the Dole yesterday mm. where Pierce Doherty had a go at Leo Varadkar saying that uh, he's been subject to a DPP investigation over the alleged leaking of documents and information and then Leo having a go back at Pierce Doherty saying that he had been arrested and prosecuted by the Gardaí um, is this Finnegale putting the boot into Sinn Féin in the fear that Sinn Féin are constantly topping the polls, Sinn Féin are the enemy, Sinn Féin could be the next uh, party in government, and that Leo is just simply trying to put the boot in to discredit Sinn Féin, or is there something else going on? Uh, there's always going to be a certain bit of discredit because they have to play catch-up and that's going to mean that they're going to have to play a little bit dirtier, they're going to have to campaign in something of a negative way. Uh, what I'm told, though, however, is that the the, the lines that Leo Varad came out with yesterday, and I've heard this from, from speaking to, to sources within the party today to follow up on that newspaper report about there being some kind of a dossier, is that uh, Leo Varadkar was not pre-briefed about the idea of criticising Pierce Doherty for a run-in with a guard that he had in 1998. I'm told that came from Leo Varadkar's own mind and that he felt it was fair game at the time because if he was challenged about having a dinner, well then let's talk to Sinn Féin about the way they hold dinners. If I'm challenged about a potential run-in with the guards, well, let's challenge Sinn Féin about their run-ins with the guards and that Leo Varadkar thought it was fair game and that he's only fighting fire with fire as far as that goes. But you are going to see, I mean, it has always been a reflexive thing within Fine Gael that they can never reconcile Sinn Féin with some of the actions of the IRA in the past and the, the continued glorification of that. So that's always going to be the case. But but I think as the, the opinion poll gap begins to bed in, if there is no sign of Fine Gael bridging that gap of 15 to 20 percentage points between the two parties, you're going to see a little bit more of this because it's not going to be a case of bridging the gap. It's going to be a case of trying to make sure that any undecided voters go into a ballot box at some point in the next three years with some doubts about the IRA in mind because you're not going to convince those who are already outside all you can best do is try and and ward away any undecided voters from going in their cutting as well Okay, Gavin we're going to have to leave it there that's Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with the Meath Chronicle just one or two comments that came in regarding Navin Hospital Jerry from Wilkinstown was in touch to say they can march all they want to save the hospital but at the end of the day you're going to go to the best hospital for the best treatment Mandy was in touch via Facebook this is 
is really bad news regarding northeast doctors on call. Lots of people get sick late at night and need to see a doctor. Most doctor surgeries have no appointments or very limited appointments on the day. So where are ill people going to go? And that just about wraps it up for today and indeed this week. I want to thank Chris Murray, who was on sound, Maggie Maguire and Marie Kearns, who put the programme together. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again soon. And until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.